is advised. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Art Star Scene Radio on Radio Free Brooklyn. I am Francis Hall, a.k.a. Face Boy. On his way here is Steve Epstein, who uh, had a little trouble finding himself here. And uh, I'm going to play a song that he had suggested uh, while we're waiting for him. This is Marquee Moon by Television. And hopefully, when this song is done playing, he's going to be here to join us. He's a, a great friend, wonderful performer. And uh, anyway, please enjoy this, and we'll be back.
That was Marquee Moon by Television. And Steve Epstein is here. Oh, man. I am here. <laughs> hey, face boy. Hey, Steve. How are you? Well, I uh, tried to find the station, and um, no one knows. <laughs> they sent me the totally the wrong way. But I finally got a cab, and here I am. So, you 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 took a subway to uh, the right exit. Got off at I got off at Morgan Ave, Morgan, right? Yep. And the first person sent me to Flushing Avenue, and for then, some fucking reason. And then I was just sent in so many wrong directions. No one knew where it was, and I was almost going to quit, but then I saw a cab, and he got me here. <laughs> so here I am. Here I am. Well, to stall, I played one of the songs that you had suggested. Uh, yeah, I heard it as I was coming in. What was that? Marquee Moon. By television, yes. And why, what does that mean to you? Well, um, basically what happened was the... Um, <coughs> I wrote, Naima and I wrote, we're, do they know who I am? <laughs> should I introduce what, what happened to Naima? Maybe we should start with that. Okay. So I know Steve going way back to surf reality. This would be the 90s. That's correct. And I was hosting uh, open mic there. I, I started hosting my open mic in 94, Collective Unconscious. I moved to surf reality in 95. And you came onto that scene when? Probably around 97, 98, something like that. And we did, uh, I remember the first night we ever were at the uh, Face Boys open mic. And um, we, you know, till the end of, till the end of our life, her life, uh, that was our favorite show we ever did. Uh, Sunday nights, Surf Reality, Face Boy open mic. It was the freest, craziest, you know, in history. And uh, we kept coming there until it closed, more or less. That was in 2003. And um, 20 years ago. Wow. This month. Which is hard to believe. Or last month, something somewhere around there. And then uh, Naima and I performed together as Epstein and Hassan, The Black and the Jew. We were husband and wife comedy team. And um, we performed, you know, throughout our, until, uh, until COVID hit, actually. And then Naima got very sick and she died in October. And um, in the last two months of her life, she was in a nursing home in the Bronx. And she was unable to move her body at all. She could just think. And one of the ways that um, I thought it would be helpful for her was she had a, she felt like, you know, our our performance was always about our life. It was about our marriage. It was about race. It was about sex. And she spent the last year and a half of her life being tortured in nursing homes and hospitals. And uh, we wanted to tell that story. It was her idea to finish out Epstein and Hassan with the final chapter. And um, so we started writing it when she was unable to move. And a lot of it was about how uh, originally we would titled it All They Can See is an Old Black Woman in a Wheelchair. Because despite the fact that Naima was a... Um, Tony Award nominated school teacher as the best performance artist teacher in New York. Despite the fact she was a Buddhist teacher, a great comedian, a great actress, in nursing homes and hospitals, they saw an old black woman and they treated her like crap. And um, I witnessed it. So for the last four or five months of her life, I advocated for her every day, fighting to get her decent treatment. 
But then we had this idea that, you know, like we always talked about our, our lives, and I thought it would be really helpful to Naima to have something to think about. So we wrote a show, and I eventually changed the title from All They Can See is an Old Black Woman in a Wheelchair to When Your Soulmate Dies. And um, I ran it for 12 weeks, and I'm going to start running it again in June. And the Tom Verlaine con- connection to it is that when um, I started finishing the final touches of doing the show, performing solo, which I never did in my life, you know, I performed with Naima. She was the actress and the performer. I wasn't. I sort of joined in with her along the way. And uh, that was when Tom Verlaine from television died. And I had been a big fan of television, going back to CBGBs and, you know, that era. And I always really... Can I ask what, how old you are? Now I'm 66. You're 66. Okay. So that was the late 70s, with te- mid-70s, late 70s with television. And... Um, Tom Verlaine and what I always loved about Tom Verlaine was that he came up at the same time all those bands Talking Heads the Ramon, like all the bands that played the CBGBs and he was definitely the best musician by far of all those people in my view and that band you know, I, I played at CBGBs once <laughs> well, I don't actually best. play any <laughs> instruments <laughs> well exactly but a lot of those people got really famous and got really rich and I did not, not and neither did Tom, <laughs> neither did Tom Verlaine Really? I mean, he when he died, they said he had $3 million. So he wasn't poor, but he was a great musician. They'll say fucking anything. Right. I, I Googled not too long ago just to see, you know, if I'm even in there for net worth, like Face Boy's <laughs> net worth. I'm like, am, am I even, did anyone even bother? You will not believe what the internet thought I was worth. How much? Eighty million dollars. <laughs> you see, I thought you had more than that. So I eighty <laughs> million dollars. And my partner, who is usually on the show, Lucas, um, is like, maybe that's fucking why people are trying to kidnap me because they think you're worth eighty fucking million dollars. Well, um, but uh, there's a lot of money in uh, internet. Ra- is this internet radio or is this ra- this regular radio? Right. You can say whatever the fuck you okay. want. Yeah. No, but so I'm saying about it how is much radio money. in that in that it runs 24 seven. Okay. These are not podcasts. These right. are not individuals. There was a show right before me. There's going to be a show right after me. It's a 24 seven. There are other th- reasons that distinguish it from a podcast. But, you know, I always like to say radio. Right. I like being part of a team. I like I'm not going to run the joke that I usually run. I'll, I'll run it for you. There's there's no me in team. Except for the M and, and, the, e. and, and the E. Um, anyway, uh, just going to backtrack a little bit. I asked about your age. That eight years does make a difference because I go into, even though I've known you since you started performing in 97, I went into more of a deep dive into into you uh, into some of the things you've chosen to share and some interviews that you've given in the past. And those eight years of difference uh, are a big difference. You mentioned something I'd only heard about uh, but had never been to. I don't know if you'd been there or not, but Plato's Retreat. Oh, yeah. Well, that, see, I'm from this. Naima and I used to do, we, we did a whole thing in our show at one point about the 1970s because that's really when we, you know, we're older. She was she was older than me, actually, a few years older than me. And um, so 
we both lead we were we came out of a different era we came out as a pre-aids era in new york when there was a big um for like the 70s they called it fun city for a reason you know plato's retreat uh hellfire all those kind of places were alive you know and because of uh you know um uh you know drugs I, I think I was high, you know, I, I basically tripped every day for like four or five years in the 70s. So, you know, I came out of that. But then I didn't know Naomi yet. We met in the early 80s, actually. Um, but Plato's Retreat was a big part of my, my life at that time. I remember the first time I ever got in there, you needed a date. A man could, go, could not go in by himself. And I literally was stopping people on it. It was at the Ansonia Hotel on Broadway. Like, uh, I forget the exact. I was stopping women in the street, asking them if they would go in with me, you know. And I found someone who did. And we eventually, she and I hung out for a number of years together. Never really as boyfriend and girlfriend, but, you know, she was into swinging. So, yeah, that was definitely a big part of my life at, at that era. You know, but late in the ninth, I mean, when we started performing, it was way after that. You know, Naima was an actress and a performer in New York in the mid-'80s. She did La Mama and uh, PS122. She had a one-woman show called um, What White People Want to Know About Black People So They Watch Bill Cosby. And Bill Cosby that, hated you. He hated her. Now, he didn't know me. I, I'm, since you mentioned Bill Cosby, uh, how did Bill Cosby become exposed to Naima, and how did she know that he hated her and... At what point in your later life, in her later life, was it, ha-ha, fuck you, Bill? Well, Bill Cosby knew Naima because of that show. What happened was in the, in the 1980s, off, she was at La Mama, which was run by a black woman named Ellen Stewart, who liked Naima, and started giving her opportunities to, to do one-woman shows. I wasn't performing then. I knew Bill Cosby because I managed jazz clubs, and he was a big jazz fan. Okay. I'll tell you my story with him, but first hers. So she got reviewed in the Village Voice on that show, and got a good review. And that in those days, I I mentioned this in our in my current show, our current show. If you got a good review in the Village Voice and at that era, people were still into theater. You would get an audience. Like today, you can get the best reviews on earth. Nobody it doesn't do anything. I know that, for that level of show. Yes. It means nothing. But years ago, it didn't matter. You get an audience. And somehow, uh, it got back to Bill Cosby, the title of the show. So he came. And Naima's thought at that time was that the big, uh, the story in that era was that Mike Nichols walked in on a Whoopi Goldberg one-woman show. And then she, he started working with her and she became a star. And Naima thought this was going to be her Whoopi Goldberg mo- moment. Mm-hmm. That Bill Cosby was going to come, but he actually thought that her show was vulgar. He came to see her in the dressing room after the show, and she thought, this is it. And he told her how she was vulgar, um, crude, and she was presenting black women in a bad way. And I worked at a jazz club, and when she came home that night, she said to me, baby... America's dad called me a hoe. <laughs> and, you know, but it, it hurt her feelings a lot. It was, you know, I mean, she made a joke out of it because she really thought it was going to be a, a thing for her. But he was very, but here's my Bill Cosby story. I managed a jazz, I managed a lot of jazz clubs, but one of them was Sweet Basil and Bill Cosby was a huge jazz fan. And what he would always do is he would stand near the door. He didn't like to sit down. 
So he would stand with me a lot. And he'd ask a waitress to get him a water. And when they brought him the water, he would give them like a $50 tip or a $100 tip. So one night, just to joke around, I got him a water. And when I handed it to him, he didn't like it. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, he doesn't like I was just kidding around. I thought it was funny because, you know, maybe you're going to give me a 50 or 100. But he doesn't like when you try to top him. So later on, when I found out about him sticking quaaludes in people's drinks, Mm -hmm. it made sense to me because he's a control freak. Mm -hmm. He didn't like me topping him. It was just I'm a manager of a club. He's an important guy. I was just I thought we had kidded around, but he didn't like it. He only wants to be putting shit in your drink. It's it's like it's like when you steal the deli guy's only joke. I'll give you an example. Uh, at Surf Reality, remember the deli oh, on the yeah. corner. So if something cost two dollars, the deli guy his one joke was twenty dollars. <laughs> <laughs> that was his joke. He he just times everything by ten. So one day I get a bagel. It's two dollars, and I goes and I say, "So what is that? Twenty dollars?" Thinking he'd laugh. Long pause, he goes, no, two. He, he didn't like it. He didn't like it. <laughs> See, that's the thing, like, you know. That's his one joke, and I stole it from him, and I, and I get now, you know, that. People are very weird, like, you know, Bill Cosby, he has a long history of ripping apart comedians that he thinks are vulgar. Well, sure, there's the story that Eddie Murphy used to tell about calling up Richard Pryor and saying, you know, that, that uh, Bill Cosby called him up and, and he goes, my son went to your show and you were saying a flippity flu and fibbity poobity boobity boo and, and, and Eddie's like, I never said, and you, you know what I mean. And he's calling up Richard Pryor and, and Richard is like, uh, and I, you can hear this story online. I'm not going to be able to tell it word for word. This is from memory. But Richard is like, so does Bill Cosby pay your bills? No, then you can tell Bill Cosby he can suck my dick. <laughs> well, that's along you know, those lines. Well, you know, Bill Cosby. I'm not really into people who judge, you know, people's stuff, especially when you're Bill Cosby because you have an impact. And uh, but when I, I kind of, I mean, Naima really she. She handled it well because Naima had, was confident in herself. But she could have been crushed by that, you know, by having somebody like Bill Cosby say that to her. And uh, I just knew, you know, see, my whole thing is because I came out of the 70s and that was the era. I don't know you, if you ever went to Hellfire and all those clubs. I did go to Hellfire, yes. That was like pre, that was when S&M was still kind of, it wasn't like a, um, a fashion show. Like, as the years went on, it just became about people dressing a certain way. Mm -hmm. And I actually, there was another club that was open on 19th Street. And because I used to do the door in places, I actually did the door in an S&M club in the 70s. And I got to learn about people's, um, you know, their psychological stuff. And some people can't, they can't handle um, if you switch on them. And Bill Cosby, obviously, somebody who puts, like, luge in your drink. That's a total control kind of, you know, disgusting behavior. Mm-hmm. And so I wasn't really that surprised because I had that experience with him not liking my joke, you know. 
And uh, I mean, through the years, Naima and I performed in places, and most comedians who were actually very kind to us, you know, we, you know, people like uh, Jerry Stiller and Ann Mira, because they were husband and wife comedy team, they saw us at Joe's Pub. Amy Stiller used to come yeah. to my open mic. Amy Stiller, she came to see our show. She's awesome. Um, her parents, Jerry Stiller was an unbelievably great guy to us. He's another jazz fan. Like, I knew him also from the jazz clubs. So, uh, but most, Bill Cosby was just, and you want to know something like, I don't, you know, since he rips everybody else apart, I never thought he was that funny to me. He's just not my cup of tea. And I never liked his TV show either. So, but, you know, back to Tom Verlaine. The reason Tom Verlaine always fascinated me was when he left television, he went off on his own. And he did the kind of things he wanted to do. He never cashed in because the record labels, like even in the song that you played, he plays like a seven-minute guitar solo. They told him not to put that on the album because it won't, you know, you can't. Yeah, it's almost an 11-minute song, which right. is perfect for yeah, my for purposes. Right. Yeah, to fucking stall until you got here. Tom Verlaine is always perfect because when he died, I started listening to these interviews that he did. And what it meant to me was because when he left television, he also did like he'd go to clubs and do like just like a folk thing, not a folk thing, like a singer-songwriter just him and his guitar. And he was talking about how it felt when you leave a band and go solo. And I had never performed solo without Naima. So I was really worried. And I listened to him in an interview he did, and he said something that really got me confident. He said, the great thing about going solo is you can't mess up. When you're in a band or even a comedy team, Naima and I had a rhythm. So if one of us messed up, it threw the other one. You know, and even learning your lines and stuff like that. When you do a solo show, you can't mess up. Nobody knows. And that made me feel like I can do it. It was a weird thing because that really affected me. And uh, so Tom Verlaine, even in death, he impacted my way of thinking because I like people who um, Tom Verlaine was clear on something that I wish I had been clear on early in life. That fame is not important. That what's important is really doing your own stuff and having confidence in yourself. That fame is actually a curse in our, in our culture. It's interesting because that is something that uh, very recently, Allison Downey, uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s older sister, said that I had impressed on her uh, and that it really opened her up to all kinds of different forms of expression. She went into painting. She went into different things. She was no longer feeling uh, competitive mm -hmm. with her brother. Uh, and I don't remember doing that or trying to have that impression on anybody. I know for myself that I have had a very mixed feelings about it. I would... If there's an afterlife, if I do not like make a lot of money in this life and someone makes a shitload of money when I'm dead and I'm able to see that, I'll be pissed the fuck off. <laughs> well, money is not money is a little different than fame. You know, like money is, you know, as, as much as I, you know, everybody it's good to have money because then you don't have to do bullshit gig jobs like I do. 
So, you know, I'm not going to lie. I wish I had made a million dollars so I wouldn't have to do that. But fame is um, it, it, it's very deadly to people in our culture. And, you know, I, Neymar and I, we were always... Um, we were always sort of, you know, the kind of shit that we did was too radical for most people. It wasn't too radical for you, but it was our reality. No. But for most people, whenever we were involved with the industry, they had a hard time with us because we were, we talked about white supremacy, uh, a black dominant woman in a marriage, and, um, uh, and class. The three things America hates most. So it was very challenging for them. You have walked away from paying gigs rather than change your materials. Yeah, that's what materials. we did. Yeah, we, that's what we did. But, but we wanted to, you know, we wanted people to recognize us in a sense. That was what, and what was very painful for me was that when Naima died, um, people from all around the world, actually, a lot of fringe festivals that we did, people who produced those festivals wrote to me how much they how great they thought we were and how great a performer Naima was and she didn't know that she knew she was great but she didn't know that other people saw she knew you thought so she knew certain people saw her but in general I think she didn't know and when I and when I read it I felt sad because I wish she would have known how people felt I mean it was pretty extraordinary people who produce festivals would tell would that I didn't even know they liked our act would say you were one of the greatest acts we ever had in this one and it was like I wish I even knew that when she was alive like a lot of people um they tell you shit when you die like mm-hmm. I'm alive so I it made me sad though it didn't make me happy even though I was a part of people saying that you know I'm part of the team but I, I it was like man so many nights Naima just went home and felt like nobody, you know, nobody cared about her. And it was kind of sad, you know. So that's why in the show that I'm currently doing, I'm very, um, you know, I, I, I'm like, I want, that's really the show. For me, it's like a love story to Naima. She was an amazing artist, a great teacher, a Buddhist teacher, all these things. And I'm telling people about it. That's my uh, that that's what I do, and, I, and then I tell them about how she got treated in the in the, in the uh, nursing homes. Uh, I'll tell you just really quick that uh, Naima collapsed in um, our apartment, and they took her to uh, St. Vincent's Hospital, what used to be St. Vincent's Hospital, but today it's a high priced condos because that was more important than having a hospital on the whole west side of Manhattan. Mm-hmm. So somehow they closed St. Vincent's, which had a trauma unit. And uh, they opened high-priced condos there, but they left an a, uh, emergency room. There's an, that's what they call a standalone emergency room. And um, so that's where they took her. And this is not when she had – she had a lot of different ailments, but this was the one that was the most shocking. So they wheel her in, and uh, I hear them say she has COVID because she has a temperature. And I'm like, she had just had kidney failure, had gotten – it started doing uh, dialysis. Anyway, so a nurse comes up to Naima and gives her a vial. Naima's on a, on a stretcher and tells her to go pee. And Naima says to her, I can't get up. The reason I collapsed. And a nurse says to Naima, I don't have patience for this today. 
All night long, you people been trying to sneak into the emergency room. So what I learned was... You people? You people. That was the key words. This is what I learned. If you, and during this period, if you had a homeless person, if they came to uh, the emergency room walking in, they were treated and then sent back to the street. But if you came in in an ambulance, they couldn't do that if they had to transfer you to Lenox Hill Hospital because you were wheeled in. So I don't consider that sneaking in, but some homeless people probably figured this out and wanting treatment, they came in in an ambulance. So this nurse, instead of being a nurse, you know, this is, I'll go further than what I told her, but um, she thought Naima was homeless. So when I said to the nurses, why did you say you people to her? She goes... I'm sorry, I'm distressed. It was very busy. I said, no, you said you people because she's black. You wouldn't have said that if she was a white person. You wouldn't have said you people to her. You thought she was homeless because she's black. And um, no, oh, but this is what she says to me. She goes, how could that be? I'm black because she was black. So I said to her, well, you're dressed as a nurse, but you're not a nurse. Because no nurse would say to a person who needs help that you're sneaking into an emergency room. Homeless people are poor people. They're not sneaking in. They're trying to get treatment. And if you were a nurse, you wouldn't say to that person, um, you're sneaking in. So I said, you're dressed as a nurse, so you're black, but you're, you're not a nurse. I said, what you actually are is a capo. And I I'm, was raised Jewish. And if you call someone a capo, that's the lowest insult. Because the capos were the Jews in the concentration camps that, to get an extra slice of bread from the Nazis, walked their mothers into gas chambers. Totally different meaning in... Uh, Mafia? Yeah. <laughs> no, but that's what a capo is in, in, the, in the concentration camps. The Jews who side... Not that they side with the Nazis. They work for the Nazis to get more food. They walk their own mothers into gas chambers. So to a Jew, if you call someone a capo, because I had people in my family who were in concentration camps. That's how I know. That's the lowest thing. So I said to her, this black nurse, I said, you're a capo for a for-profit hospital corporation. You're not a nurse. Because to me, no nurse would ever say that to a human being that needs help. You're worried about them sneaking in because... You're worried about the hospital not wanting them to get treated because they don't want homeless people. And in terms of being black, I also reminded her that black people suffer from white supremacy, too. If you're raised in the United States, not every black person has the insight to see that they also um, believe in white privilege and believe in all these things. A lot of the people who mistreated Naima in nursing homes and hospitals were black. I make that point in our show, it, it, you know, and Naima knew that too. I mean, my friend is a black man. He told me down south, his grandmother used to say, if a black man was selling ice and a white man was selling ice, black people sometimes would buy the ice from the white person because they thought his ice was better. If you're raised in America, you're raised with white privilege, you're wa- raised with white supremacy, it's in your conditioning. Now, many black people see through it. But not all. And this nurse, she was, um, she saw a homeless person. 
And that whole thing with homeless people carried through at Naima. In the show, I explain all these things that happened because they registered as a homeless person, that she had no husband, she had no doctor, she had no um, address. Why would that be? Because originally they wrote her that she was homeless. And when they made the transfer from the nursing home, from the um, first she went from the uh, emergency room to the hospital to a nursing home, in the transfer, they never corrected that she wasn't homeless. So this is something else that I point out in the show. When I met Naima, she showed me her birth certificate. And on her birth certificate, where it was listed father's name, it said none. She had a father, never left her family. Many black people from her generation on their birth certificates where it says father's name, it says none. So in the end of her life, she had a husband. She, she had no husband, no father, no doctor, no actor. She had all those things. But she was seen as a homeless person, not as a human being. That's why the show is called What All They Can See is an Old Black Person in a Wheelchair. Because that's what they see. They don't see a, a woman with a master's degree, a brilliant comedian, a, a Buddhist teacher. Uh, they just see an old black person. And in the healthcare system in America, everyone gets treated like shit. Black people get treated the shittiest. Mm-hmm. Naima was sometimes given, because black women, they get the worst drugs. Instead of giving her OxyContin when she was dying of cancer, they were giving her uh, Tylenol. Yeah, the medical industry has, there have been studies that have shown that they seem to believe that people of color have a higher pain threshold. I've studied all that for the show. I mean, I've I've, I've changed a little bit of how I do the show because I was doing too much um, numbers and statistics because I have all that information about black women, how they get treated. How even current medical students believe that black women can handle pain better than white women. These are people living today, graduating mm-hmm. from medical schools. But Naima was getting, instead of OxyContin, whatever, however they say it. Because if you get Oxy in a nursing home, after a few days, they have to cut you off and reorder it for you. Because of that family, the Sackler family, they addicted everyone in America to that drug. And so now there's a lot of rules even in nursing homes, the doctor's got to keep reordering it. If they don't, then the nurses give you uh, Tylenol. And Naima was, had cancer. You, Tylenol is useless. So I know all about this and about how they're treated. And that's my goal in life, actually. My goal in life is now that I witness this, um, how black women in particular are brutalized in nursing homes and, and hospitals, that I'm going to go and call it out. And what's been interesting is in the show I'm doing, uh, almost everyone who treated Naima at Bellevue has come to see the show because I was such a strong advocate for her at Bellevue as well, although Bellevue is better than other places. But still, um, I saw it with my own eyes. I saw things that were hard to believe. And, um, you know, but that nurse, so-called nurse, because she's not a nurse. When I said that to her, you're not a nurse. Because nurses, you know, you can't imagine someone going to nursing school and coming out and thinking, I'm going to be a school guard and try to catch people sneaking in rather than trying to help somebody. It's mind-blowing what happens to people, you know. And, And the same thing with even the aides in the hospital, you know, they're... They're, they're quite 
brutal to especially black women. A black woman in, in a nursing home flipped out because she kept buzzing and nobody came. So she went and ripped her clothes off and tried to go to the bathroom herself and collapsed. So they come and get the security and they leave her in the hall naked on a gurney, like strapped in. And it's like a few minutes and no one is covering her. So I covered her and I said the same thing. They would never let a white person be naked like that. You know, black people's bodies are, um, we live in America, man. It's like, you know, I'm, this is, nothing ever changes here when it comes to race, you know. So, but I, I'm a white guy and um, I told this other nurse that um, I'm going to use all my white privilege on you. And I even use my Jewish privilege. And this is an interesting story because um, I was trying to contact every head of a department, social workers, night nurses. No one's calling me back at one of the nursing homes. So at a certain point, I'm, I went on Google and I found out who owned it because there has to be a corporate owner. And it turned out that they happened to be in Brooklyn and I put two and two together and I realized, oh, they're Hasidim. You know, they're Hasidim. They spent over $100 million, bought these three nursing homes. So I went to their offices. And to get in there, I told them I was there to pay my bill because it's really hard to get into places, but I figured that would get me in. Mm -hmm. And, you know, because I'm Jewish, I was able to say to them that um, Naima could not move her hands or legs. So giving her a buzzer to get the nurse's attention, you know, with the lights come on, is useless to her because she can't use it. And we live in 2022, you can get voice activated, all kinds of ways to get buzzers, but they don't have them because they cost money. So I finally got to like a head person in amongst the, the ownership, like a ma- high-level manager who was Hasidic. And I said to him, you know, I'm Jewish, so I'm going to say something to you. I know you think that by bribing the rabbis, you're going to get into heaven, but you're not because you don't give people a buzzer. You treat people like shit, like they're not human beings, and you should be ashamed of yourself. So I use my Jewish privilege, and I got Naima not, uh, I did get her a voice-activated thing, but I didn't get her good treatment, because nobody gets good treatment. So, Well, you have to advocate. If it, you know, my I'm dealing as a caregiver for my mom. She has had a, a number of visits to a number of different hospitals. And it makes a hell of a difference if you if there's someone there with you. Yeah, absolutely. And if they advocate for you. And if they know someone. We happened to be at the last time that I was at the hospital with her. I think it was the most recent time. I looked up and I said, and I saw that we were in a place called the Peter J. Sharp Wing. And I know him. Uh, I went to school with his sister, Randall Sharp. And... Um, and I just thought it was an interesting coincidence, and I, and I said it out loud. I was like, I said it to my mom, and one of the people at the front desk overheard me. I was like, Peter J. Sharp, he's uh, he, he's uh, he's Randy Sharp's brother. I, I know him. And she's like, oh, yeah. And the care changed like yeah. that. Absolutely. It was all of a sudden, she's a fucking superstar as opposed to just another patient. 
she didn't have to wait for anything after that. There was just so much extra oh, care. So it's, so it's it's so true. I told the nurses there that I'm a secret shopper. I'm going to be here every time of the day, and I ended up knowing. I knew the I knew the behavior of the nursing home. As long as they let you in, like you can't always get in. Sometimes of the day you can't, but I never let them know when I will be coming. You know, because I wanted to be there and make sure that they didn't leave her lying in her own shit for three hours. That they gave her um, food that was somewhat edible. You know, and then I learned that they get like eight hundred dollars a day for room and board mm-hmm. from the from the country. Well, you know, Medicaid or whatever Medicare, and always confuse them. It's amazing. It's just a ripoff. Nursing homes and uh, in particular, hospitals are bad in New York, but not like nursing homes. Nursing homes are a disgrace to humanity, and so that's my mission. Like that's you know, I. I um, there is comedy in the show, by the way, too, because I do pieces of Epstein and Hassan stuff. And there's usually comedy in this show, but I never guarantee anything. Well, I'll uh, give you a little I, I will not guarantee <laughs> that you will laugh uh, during this hour. I will not guarantee anything. Uh, if if you cry during this hour, I'm not going to guarantee that you won't. <laughs> well, that's good because that I won't guarantee that you feel anything. I hope that you do. And I hope that you learn something, and I hope that when you hear about this that you get angry and that you keep your eyes open. And if you have somebody who is uh, hurting and needs medical care, that you listen to this show and that you do everything to make sure that person is never alone. Absolutely. <coughs> because even if you got money, I have friends, Space Boy, that their parents, they were real old, like over 90. They got them into this nice nursing home in Long Island. And in order to get them in, they had to show them that they each had over $3 million because the nursing home wants to get it all before they die. Even there, her parents got bed sores. Now, bed sores are because they're not doing their job. They got to keep turning you. And very painful, like brutal to people. People don't know. Like, I know too much about this shit. So let me just say something sort of funny. Okay. Oh, I think it's funny. You know, um, name. I think we, you know, we we used to do some of these, you know, things at your show. And by the way, I just want to say this really quick. I saw you perform a little bit last week at the Radio Free Brooklyn Eighth um, Anniversary. You were hosting it, and you know, I'm not saying this because you're standing sitting across from me. I love you as a performer. I've always loved you as a performer. I love the way you. Um, you know, just the way you read stuff and the way you deliver it. And it was really great for me to see you. I mean, you still, you know, I haven't seen you perform in quite some time. And you're, you, you're one of my favorite performers. Thank I, you. I appreciate that. I love the way you read and I love the way you just, your um, persona. And your show was my favorite of all the shows, you and Reverend Jen. Um, were, you know, it, you have a special... Um, <coughs> thing but here's what i was gonna say like naima used to do a piece where she said if you marry a white man sexual reparations must be paid so one of the sticks that we always did in the show was that naima said that you know i was never allowed to come first because of all the shit that white men have done to black women the least i could do was make her come first mm-hmm. before i would come and then we took it further and further where over the years naima decided that i couldn't come unless i asked her for permission to come and then sometimes she wouldn't even give me the permission to come. And I was like trained like a dog. I said, even if, you know, I want to jerk off, I had to call her. And if she said, no, I didn't do it. And then she died on me. 
So I don't know how to come unless somebody tells me to come. It's been six months now. She's dead. So, you know, it's, it's starting to really you know back up on me because, you know, I need permission. So if there are any black women out there that want to give me that, uh, you know, carry on from Naima. So that, I mean, I do Epstein and Hassan. We, I do um, a little bit of what we did together. It's hard, with, obviously, for me to do without, without her there. But to give people a feeling on Naima's, um, you know, um, just her ability to, as Larry Flint told us a long time ago, there's never been a comedy team like you two, because there's never been a comedy team where the woman was in a sort of dominant sexual position in the history of comedy. Nobody ever did the way we did it. And, no. and you know, so that's from Larry Flint from a hustler. Because our two biggest uh, advocates um, were Al Goldstein from Screw Magazine and Larry Flint. So, I, you know. Y- y- yeah, the first person I ever got, because I, you know, uh, my stuff was considered nasty and raunchy and all that stuff. I, you know, personally didn't think it was all that extreme. But I couldn't get, the very first press I ever got was from Screw Magazine. They were the only people that would print anything about what I was doing. Eventually, as you know, I got covered by paper. I got mm-hmm. covered by Time Out in New York, a front page of the Arts and Leisure section of the New York Times. All of that shit came later when I already fucking had an audience. Right. <laughs> but when I was like dying to get asses in the seats, the very first publication uh, was was a uh, screw. And the next one was a a, a a gay magazine called Next Magazine, which I remember basically, that magazine. yeah, a gay that. guide. For, well, we uh, ended up doing. You were, I think, the first one. Did you hosted the Blue Angel Exotic Cabaret? The I think the first, the original one. When it was, yes, I did. But years later, we were the hosts of that show, yes. and that was when we met Larry Flint and Al Goldstein because they came to see that show, and. Um, so that was, and then we hooked up with Al Goldstein a lot. And, but Larry Flint was the one who more or less told Naima and I that you guys should stick with that that piece about sexual reparations for black women in a marriage and do a lot of stuff, you know. And we did. It was great advice for us. Because <laughs> he said there's never been, a, you know, never a husband and wife comedy team never came from that point of view. And, um, you know. But I do remember uh, the Blue Angel. You did it when it was in Tribeca. That was like the original uh, Blue Angel. We yes. did it later on at the House of Candles and at uh, Gene Frankel Theater. And we did it for a few years. Laura Dinabell was the original one, and then she quit. And we were in the show, and then we became the hosts. Yeah, I... I, I uh... I've talked about that gig in the past, so I'm not going to go into it right now because we only have five minutes left, and I actually have to do this. Uh, Radio Free Brooklyn, and I like to do this because I like our mission. Uh, Radio Free Brooklyn's mission is to provide a free and open platform to our community and promote media literacy, education, free expression, and public art. We, we rely primarily on donations from listeners like you. Every dollar helps us stay on the air and allows us to continue our work in the community. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization, so all contributions are tax deductible. Please support with a monthly pledge or a one-time donation at radiofreebrooklyn.org slash donate. If you'd like to listen to RFB while you're not in front of your computer, please do download our free mobile app for iPhone 
and Android available in the App Store for iPhone or the Google Play Store for Android. Please be sure to subscribe to our monthly newsletter for the latest news about new programming and upcoming RFB events. You can sign up at RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash newsletter. And before we run out of time, please let folks know when your show is coming back, uh, how long the next run is, and how they can get tickets. Okay, the show will be Saturdays in uh, in June. I think it's the 3rd, the 10th, the 17th, and the 24th at 7.30 p.m. at the Alchemical Theater, which is on 17th Street off 5th Avenue. And you could always check us out at theblackandthejew.com. I mean, that's our, our webpage. And um, tickets are available at feverup.com. You can go online and... Uh, Buy them at feverupof.com, and uh, or you can buy them at the door. It doesn't, you know. I don't think we're going to sell out. I ran twelve shows. It was pretty good audience. Uh, we got two really great reviews of the show, and you know now it becomes the grind of seeing if I can keep it going because I want. I'm going to keep it going. I, you know, one thing about Epstein and on, as you probably remember, Faceboy, we'll do our show to two people. I know, and you will do it with the same, same energy yeah, as if it. you're doing the 200 or 2000. That is one of the amazing things about you as performers. We are going to close with a, a very touching song. This was the song that was playing at as you arrived at Naima's apartment on your first date on October 25th in 1984. Naima passed on October 25th, 2023. I want to thank you, Steve, so much for being here. Thanks, Facebook. And I was talking to Tom Tenney about uh, you coming on the show, and he's like, he's like so welcome to be, if you want to show on this station, be part of this community, please know you don't have to jump through the hoops as a lot of people do. This is Ain't No Sunshine, Bill Withers. Ain't no sunshine when she's gone. It's not warm when she's away Ain't no sunshine when she's gone She's always gone too long Anytime she goes away Wonder this time where she's gone Wonder if she's gone to stay Sunshine when she's gone And this house just ain't no home Anytime she goes away I know, 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 I know But ain't no sunshine when she's gone Ain't no sunshine when she's gone Only darkness every day Ain't no sunshine when she's gone And this house just ain't no home Anytime she goes away Anytime